0: hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of roundhouse crosstalk a podcast hosted by the california state railroad museum in this week's episode of roundhouse crosstalk we sit down with dr kevin waite a professor at durham university to discuss his new book west of slavery where we learn all about the southern dream for a transcontinental empire um, and learn about how they wanted to spread slavery into the west Uh, how they went about trying to do so and ultimately why these aspirations failed we'll even touch on the southern dream for transcontinental railroad um, and how close they got to making that a reality so without further ado let's get into the interview all right well welcome to the podcast we appreciate you being here can we start off by uh, having you introduce yourself and how you got interested in this subject
1: Sure, thanks Jake. Um, So uh, I'm an associate professor at Durham University, but as you can probably tell from my accent, uh, I am not in fact British, that's just where I teach and where I live. Um, I was born and raised in Pasadena, California, and then I sort of bopped between the East Coast and the UK for most of my uh, education, so I did my BA at Williams College in Massachusetts and then a master's at Cambridge Then came back to the US to do a PhD at the University of Pennsylvania, then went back to the UK to take this job at Durham University, which is in uh, the the Northeast of England.
0: So something your book does um, is define the South as an empire and talk about um, Southern expansion as a um, imperial process. Um, So maybe we can start with talking about in what ways the South uh, qualifies as an empire um, and what you mean when you're talking about imperialism in this context?
1: So, slaveholding Southerners were empire builders, or maybe want to be empire builders. In a lot of ways, they. Invaded parts of Latin America, Cuba, Nicaragua in an attempt to set up slaveholding regimes there. They successfully waged a war uh, against Mexico and took about half of Mexico's territory. Uh, They hoped to to plant slavery on a lot of that terrain. Um, They used strong-arm tactics to negotiate a trade treaty with China in the 1840s in the hopes of basically extending King Cotton into the Pacific. Um, so they were, of course, they always operated their empire within the United States. This was not an independent empire except for the brief reign of the Confederacy during the Civil War. Um, but then they expanded their influence in a lot of sort of non imperial ways, um, mainly by planting pro-slavery politicians all over the American West. I mean, this isn't traditionally defined as an imperialist move, but it did expand sort of the Southern sphere of influence across the American continent. And so I'm interested in in my book, West of Slavery, in the ways in which Southerners expanded into the the American West, some ways were overtly imperialist, some ways were just sort of expansionist, more broadly defined. Um, But it seems like a, a lot of historians of miss the, the more subtle forms of slaveholding expansion because our, our, we're, we're often drawn to the sort of the, the violent ways in which slavery expanded across North America and a lot of the world. Um, but the book traces a lot of these more subtle, more political forms as well.
0: So something I really like about sort of approaching it in that way is that um, it sort of makes you recontextualize the way we look at imperialism in the west because we mostly associated it at least from what i've seen um, with the north because they ended up having more control over that area or maybe um, in a lot of our minds those are sort of separate time periods where you have the civil war where you're focusing on the north versus south and then once that's solved now the shift is over towards western expansion but what your book kind of shows is that one that predates um the civil war you know both sides are looking at the west as a sort of colonial project that they can use to project their powers. Um, But diving into, I guess now, into the the role people in the West had um, in sort of connecting this situation together. Um, So your book talks about people who sympathized with the South and lived in the West. Um, So who were those people and what were they doing?
1: Um, So, Sometimes, and I think maybe Frederick Jackson Turner in his frontier thesis was most responsible for creating this misconception that the West places like California and New Mexico somehow remained free from the political controversy over slavery that California was far enough from the deep South to not be tainted by slavery. But of course, most of the Americans who lived in California, lived in Utah and New Mexico and Arizona in the 1850s came from parts of the United States that were sort of deeply embroiled in this controversy over slavery. And when these people moved West, they took their political affiliations with them. Um, So the, the major overland trail that took southerners into the gold fields of california during the gold rush actually ran through los angeles Um, so la in the 1850s the the majority of the american-born population of los angeles was actually southern Um, the same goes for what became the territory of arizona parts of new mexico there was a southern influence in utah at the same time it's because a lot of southerners settled in these areas
0: so within the southwest we're talking about here were there any differences between how slavery manifested itself um, in the Southwest versus, you know, a more traditional um, uh, antebellum South?
1: Mm. Let's see. There were, there were a number, if, if you wanted to own the labor of somebody else in the 1850s, in the American Southwest, there were a number of ways that you could go about doing that. Um, one, you could buy a captive Native American on the indigenous slave trade in the Southwest. Um, Two, you could ensnare a peasant in a lifelong form of bondage known as debt peonage, which was essentially serfdom. It resembled you know, sharecropping in the post-Civil War South in a lot of ways, um, trapping a peasant in a cycle of debt that he could never escape from, and he would owe his labor to you for the rest of his life. In some cases, that, that debt was transferred to uh, you know, the, the peon's um, children, and so slavery or that form of bondage was heritable. Um, or you could forcibly transport enslaved African-Americans into the West and uh, estimates or the, the precise figures are really hard to pin down because slaveholders often didn't keep a running tally of who they were smuggling into the American West. But historians like Stacy Smith estimate that somewhere between 500 to 1,500 enslaved African Americans were taken into California, probably about 100 into Utah, probably another 100 into New Mexico. So we're not talking about an enormous number of people. But when you consider just how hard it was to forcibly transport somebody across the North American continent from the slave south into a place like the California gold country, um, these numbers are actually pretty sig- pretty significant.
0: Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, I guess, so in this time period, generally what we think about is, you know, the Oregon Trail, which um, I think in the, the way it sort of sorts itself out in our public mythology, it tends to be these uh, people from, you know, maybe Minnesota or Wisconsin or somebody, somewhere in uh, usually uh, the, the northwest. No, that's all right. I guess the northeast, midwest today. Um, but what you're seeing, I guess, here is that it really was both sides moving into the west um, and both interacted with the west in, in fairly similar ways at this point. Um, so that's really interesting to think about. So I guess people who didn't move out to the west but lived in the south um, wh- how did they think about the West? What, what was their sort of conception of what the West was like?
1: The South viewed the West, at least the, the far Southwest. So we're really talking about California, New Mexico, um, Arizona, and parts of Utah as this vast landscape of opportunity. Um, and they saw that opportunity playing out in a couple different ways. Um, one, this was an area where they could expand their political sphere of influence Um, and they hoped that as these territories became states that they would get to plant um, southern sympathizing congressmen and senators in these places. Um, That was for a lot of slaveholding expansionists. This was the big payoff of the West. This could be essentially their political terrain. Um, It was also seen as a potential terminus for a Southern transcontinental railroad. And we can talk more about that, I'm sure, in, in just a little bit. Um, and then it was also seen as a gateway to Asia, um, that that the ports of California would be a launching pad for um, American ships carrying slave-grown cotton into the markets of China. I mean, Southern slaveholders sort of lusted after the Chinese market. They never really captured the, the a, a vast share of it like they hoped, but actually at through most of the late 1840s and 1850s, cotton, American-grown cotton, was actually the the U.S.'s top import into China.
0: Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And, you know, the Transcontinental Railroad, in reality, and in a lot of people's conception, uh, as I understand, um, sort of is that, like, final manifestation of that Northwest Passage that so many people in Explorers have been, has been trying to find for so long to connect Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, and um, you know, with the Transcontinental Railroad, th- th- now it exists. Now you can ship things um, from you know through both oceans, and sort of using um, a railroad to be as a, like sort of a created Northwest west Passage rather than discovered. So obviously, to get a Transcontinental Railroad done and get that like created Northwest Passage um, operational, uh, obviously requires a lot of politicking. So, so, how did the South attempt to get this done uh, from a political angle?
1: Southerners influenced policy in the West through a number of a number of means, some subtle, some less so. Um, uh, like I mentioned earlier, there were a lot of Southern born politicians in the West. Um, so in California in the 1850s, White Southerners never really amounted to much more than 30% of California's total population, and yet they won election after election after election in California. Um, They did that largely through the political patronage system. Um, We sometimes forget today just how important patronage networks were to, to American politics for most of American history. Um, So the way that Southerners really ran the show in California, and they really did control California politics through most of the 1850s, was by taking advantage of patronage appointments. So the leading senator in California through most of this period was a guy named William Gwynn. He was a Mississippi slaveholder with a massive plantation in Natchez and about 200 enslaved people working that plantation. He operated that plantation by proxy as he sort of ran the political show in California through most of the antebellum period. And Gwynne was responsible for appointing and positioning a lot of his white southern born friends in these patronage positions in California, and some of these were really, really lucrative. Um, I mean this was the easiest way to just have a nice salary and sit around and do nothing so um, when he put these people in these positions within California, like in the San Francisco Customs House um, these people owed their political allegiance to him. Um, so he created this really well-oiled political machine through those appointments. i mean, the the San Francisco Customs House was loaded with so many southerners on these really fat federal sinecures that it it came to be known as the Virginia Poorhouse. Um, and so again, we don't we don't we don't look to the Customs House really as this like, Epicenter of politicking in American history, but it really was in California in the 1850s.
0: So I guess, how direct is this control? Um, you talked about, you know, these people being appointed to these positions so that they can carry out, you know, X, Y, or Z. But is it as, you know, direct as, okay, you are appointed to do this, or is it sort of this indirect process of like, okay, I appointed you because you're generally sympathetic to issue X that I'm also sympathetic into issue X for, and um, you generally know how you, I, I want you to vote, and you'll repay the favor of being appointed uh, by voting that way, or you won't get any other favors. Is it sort of, I guess, the indirect or direct way?
1: Yeah, I I think it's the latter, Jake. It's um, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know why you're in this position. You owe your political fealty to me. And maybe you have an extended political network and those guys will also owe their loyalty to me. Um, And so if you go into the archives and read the papers of prominent California politicians from the 1850s, it's full of actually... um, uh, the, this correspondence is often full of letters from supplicants for for these various positions. Like, hey, please, I could really use this nice juicy plum in the in the customs house of San Francisco. Will you please appoint me? I've been a loyal supporter of yours for years and years. Um, and one of my favorite letters is actually in the Massachusetts Historical Society, and it's by it's a it's a series of letters from uh, uh, an abolitionist from. Massachusetts, who moves to San Francisco in the 1850s. And he's writing to his wife about sort of the dismal prospects for abolitionism in California. As I mentioned, there were these, you know, hundreds of enslaved people in the state, and abolitionists had a really tough time freeing them. Um, and he said, he, he was sort of wondering to his wife why it is these Southerners control the scene in California. And he said, well, maybe it's because all of us Northerners went into business. And that just left all the political positions and the legal positions to these Southerners. And to an extent, he's not entirely wrong.
0: So, so jumping away a little bit here, I guess, um, one thing your book focuses on is the idea of a continental South. Um, so, so what does that mean?
1: So the the continental south is my coinage to explain the the political sphere of influence that stretched across really the southern half of the country. So the 15 slave states of the south all the way to to the Pacific, um, which included New Mexico, what would become the territory of Arizona, parts of Utah um, and most of California. Um, We don't typically think of a place like Southern California as the South, Mm -hmm. Um, but one of the arguments of the book is that in a lot of ways it was in its political orientation, it was pretty Southern. And so, you know, where the South ends and the West begins in this part of the country isn't always easy easy to tell. There was a pretty thin line that separated the two. I mean, slavery was legal across most of that Southern half of the country, all the way to the Pacific. Um, and slaveholders really controlled the, the share of power, uh, in that part of the country as well.
0: So California is admitted into the union and, um, I guess just focusing on California specifically, um, they're admitted as a free state. Um, but as you mentioned, there are a couple hundred enslaved individuals uh, living in California at the time. So I guess I'm, I'm curious on what that process was like, because you mentioned that um, a lot of the court officials and things like that were uh, Southerners that were appointed specifically to help enforce enslavement. So um, was it really difficult for these folks to get their freedom um, or... What was that process like, I guess?
1: Yeah, in in California through most of the 1850s, the court system typically sided with slaveholders and against the enslaved. Um, they did that for a number of reasons, one of which is most of the justices on the California Supreme Court for most of this period came from the South themselves. I think five of the seven justices between 1852 and 1857 were, in fact, Southern born. And then one of them was a northerner who supported John C. Calhoun when he ran for president. So, you know, they they had this monopoly on, uh, on the seats on the California Supreme Court. Um, also, the California legislature did its best to pass laws to support slaveholders, um, mm. to, to give them sort of just enough leeway to continue importing enslaved people into the state, or at least to enable them to hold enslaved people for a time um, and not worry about them being taken from them. So, California in 1852 passed its own Fugitive Slave Act. Um, and that the, the Fugitive Slave Act of California basically said, well, you know, Technically, this is a free state, but so long as you move your slave back to the South, at some point, you can keep them there for the time being. Um, and Stacy Smith, the historian says, this is basically like a, a moratorium on the anti-slavery constitution of California.
0: I think that's really interesting because when we, we think about the sort of process of, of entering um, the union as either a, a free or a slave state, we think of that as sort of all encompassing. And as soon as that is declared, um, that state is free of, of, um, of that institution. But what it sounds like here is is that's just not the case. It's a much more messy and incomplete process. Um, and I, I'm curious: is there even like a limit to that moratorium? Like, could somebody just say like, "Oh yeah, my intention is to eventually bring this person back." Um, so therefore, you know, because that would, that seems like it's almost quasi legal at that point. Seems like there's no real teeth to that free um, state. Uh, delineation.
1: Yeah, I think that moratorium ran until 1855. So really, I mean, in in the book, I say California is really a free state in name only. Um, And that's not exactly what we were taught in our schools, or at least what I was taught. Um, I mean, 1850 seems to mark this breaking point in the history of slavery in the West, California becomes a free state. And therefore, that's the end of the history of slavery out West. But um, I'm trying to argue that it was actually a, a good deal more complicated than that.
0: So how did this all connect with the discussions surrounding the first transcontinental railroad? Um, obviously, a whole bunch of people wanted one, but um, I'm guessing there were some arguments over um, you know, what route to take, how that transcontinental railroad should operate, um, all that good stuff. So, so what was what was that like?
1: So the. The debate over the transcontinental railroad in the 1850s was completely bound up in the question of slavery and the, and, and, and the prospect of slavery's expansion. Um, so most all Americans agreed that a transcontinental railroad should be built, but what they really couldn't agree on is where it should run. Now, should it run across free soil in the American North or should it run across slave country and into the American Southwest. And it, this was such a big fraught political question because whichever section got that railroad would control commerce along its main route. I mean, there, there would probably be various branch lines off of the main route, but the main route would, that, that that's where the, the lion's share of the commerce would come from. Um, and they also believed that that sort of iron cable across the country would bind the the two halves of the country together and unify them along either a pro-slavery or an anti-slavery line. Um, so again, if that railroad ran across the South, then it would pull the West even further into the, into the slave state's political fold.
0: So how close would you say the South actually was to building the Transcontinental Railroad? Were they, you know, Right, knocking on the door for it, or is this sort of was a was it a long shot? I guess
1: really close on a number of occasions. Um, so, if you were a, a betting person in the early 1850s, you would probably want to put your money on the South winning the transcontinental railroad. The preferred route for Southerners was they couldn't really agree on a on an eastern terminus, though Memphis. Um, was sort of a leading candidate for a lot of this period, running across really the U.S.-Mexico border and into Southern California. And the reason it looked like Southerners were going to get this railroad is because they really controlled um, the levers of power in Washington in, in the early 1850s, especially. And so, um, a slaveholder, James Gadsden, orchestrated a land purchase from Mexico, the last act of U.S. territorial expansion before the Civil War, um, in order to build this Southern transcontinental railroad. They thought that this Gadsden purchase terrain was sort of prime real estate to, for, for a Southern transcontinental railroad to run along. Um, then in the late 1850s, uh, Southerners managed to pass uh, an act to establish the first major overland mail road across the country. And this, this mail road, which became known as the Butterfield Overland Road, ran across almost the exact route that they wanted for their southern transcontinental railroad and it was sort of conventional wisdom at the time that okay first you build this overland road and then that's the precursor for a railroad first wagons um, then rail cars
0: i think it's really interesting to think about the south as like potentially building that first transcontinental railroad because we don't generally associate the south with railroad building um, we generally associate the North with that, obviously, because they had more railroads um, at the time of the Civil War. So that's, that's interesting to sort of see the South is also focusing on the railroad in this period.
1: Um, there's, I think there's this misconception of the antebellum South as this land of, you know, moonlight magnolias, these the, the planter class sort of simp- sipping mint juleps on their verandas and just sort of deliberately cloistered from the modern world. But a lot of slaveholding Southerners were were modern. They were forward-looking. I mean, these aren't necessarily compliments. I'm not saying that these guys are, <laughs> uh, were were at all admirable, but they did they did have a pretty keen sense about the way the winds of history were blowing, and they thought they were blowing in their direction. Um, and so they were perfectly comfortable using federal power um, and using technology to get exactly what they wanted, which was the expansion of slavery and slaveholding power across the American West.
0: So, so obviously, it ended up not working out. The South did not build that transcontinental railroad uh, before the Civil War. Um, so, so, what happened there? Why didn't they? Why weren't they successful?
1: Probably two main flashpoints. Um, the first was the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which actually was was born out of this railroad controversy. It was Stephen Douglas's attempt to open up uh, a Northern route or a more central route for the transcontinental railroad because Stephen Douglas realized that Southerners were sort of winning this debate. Um, So by opening Kansas and Nebraska to white settlement and allowing a a railroad to potentially pass across that land, he, he thought he could divert attention from the Southern route but it ended up really blowing up the railroad debate altogether because after the Kansas-Nebraska Act and Bleeding Kansas, things, the, the sectional crisis or tensions between North and South were just running so hot that uh, that any railroad bill whatsoever was just gonna get swallowed up by that controversy. Um, so that, that was the, maybe that was the first nail in the coffin of a transcontinental railroad during the antebellum period. And then the second nail in the coffin was the civil war itself. Um, the South seceded from the Union, I mean, citing their grievances about not getting to build the Southern Transcontinental Railroad. Um, And then, of course, as you and and your listeners know, it was during the Civil War that the Pacific Railroad Bill is passed and that, you know, ground is broken on the first Transcontinental Railroad. And the reason they could could pass that bill and break ground was because there were no Southerners left in Congress to block a a more Northern road.
0: So something I'm interested in. So during the, so the Transcontinental Railroad, the one that was actually built, that connected uh, east and west coast predominantly, well, I guess exclusively through the north um, uh, instead of the south, um, that was actually built, it uh, started being built bef- um, before the Civil War was over. So during the middle of the Civil War, Pacific Railroad Act of 1862 was signed into law, and they start focusing on building that railroad um, at the same time as fighting that war. So I'm curious, did the South do the same thing? Were they trying to build a transcontinental railroad or doing any surveys, anything like that, um, during the Civil War, or were they completely preoccupied?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, Jake. They were thinking about it, but you're right in that they they simply did not have the resources to build uh, to build anything approaching a, a transcontinental railroad during the war itself. You know, who knows? It's one of the great counterfactuals: is you know what what would a, an independent Confederacy have looked like in the post-war period? How long might slavery have survived in North America? Um, and then what would American infrastructure look like too? Um, and that's a, that's a big part of that question. Um, but Lincoln's administration actually had the resources, had the political will, had the power um, to pass the bill and to get at least started on a transcontinental railroad during the war.
0: So one of the reasons the transcontinental railroad um, was so important to the folks in the North, especially during that civil war, was they were really afraid that if they didn't build um, some way to unite the uh, East and the West, that maybe eventually they'd they'd be looking at a civil war um, that direction as well as those sort of economies uh, work differently and cultures develop differently and things like that. Um, so I'm curious if um, once the Transcontinental Railroad is built after the Civil War, does the South's influence over the West um, decline? Uh, or are they no longer this big threat for Northern control in the West, I guess?
1: It... It did. It did partly because the Union war machine suppressed Southern sympathy in the West. Um, So there were a number of sort of secessionist plots in the far West over the course of the war. And in fact, Arizona, which was then the Southern half of New Mexico, Arizona's is now the Western half of uh, what used to be New Mexico Territory, but at the time it was the Southern half, seceded from the Union. Um, and it seceded from the Union before four slave states, uh, uh, the slave, slave states of Virginia North Carolina, Tennessee, and oh boy, what's the what's the fourth? <laughs> It'll come to me after, um, but uh, but Arizona was in a lot of ways on the sort of leading edge of a fully national rebellion against the United States. Um, and there were a whole bunch of secessionist scares mostly in Southern California over the course of the war. Um, during the war, um, the US military was was a, really able to, to choke off that secessionist sympathy um, in large part because the union built a massive military barracks called drum barracks just outside Los Angeles. Um, and the soldiers there, thousands of soldiers, passed through drum barracks over the course of the war. And one of their responsibilities was to police these secessionists in Southern California. Um, L.A. actually fielded the only militia from a free state to fight for the Confederacy. It was a unit of about eighty to one hundred men that was commanded by the, the former undersheriff of L.A. So there was, in fact, quite a bit of sort of pro-Confederate sympathy in the region, partly because so many Southerners had settled in it, um, but Except for Arizona, they never managed to to break um, any part of the far West from the United States. I should add um, that what you said about a railroad binding together East and West is really important because there were a lot of people in the 1850s who said, unless you, you build this railroad, we're gonna lose California and maybe more chunks of the far West. Um, and in fact, through, through a lot of American history, expansionists didn't really think that the entire, that the entire, or, or that the United States would, would span the continent, um, mm-hmm. that the Pacific coast was just too far away to really be included under um, the American political system, and that there would be multiple republics, multiple sort of like-minded republics of white Americans, um, but multiple republics nonetheless. Um, And then at the outset of the Civil War, uh, there was a lot of talk of creating an independent Pacific Republic. Mm. Um, And William Gwynn, the Mississippi uh, slaveholder come California senator, uh, was a big mover and shaker in that Pacific Republic movement.
0: So something that we've talked about a lot here is how this book and sort of these ideas sort of transgress against the typical memory of um, the relationship between the South and the West and the South and imperialism and the South and empire and all these other things. Um, So so why do you think it is that modern perception and modern memory of these events have um, altered so much from the actual historical record?
1: I think it has a good deal to do with the, with, with at least California's political orientation today as this land of sort of progressive politics um, uh, and, and culture. Um, it, California, at least most parts of the state seem so far from the antebellum South that it's almost inconceivable that they were once politically quite aligned. Um, and, and it probably has a good deal to do with just how we're taught our history. Um, that the West is usually cast as this land apart that doesn't really factor into sort of the mainstream American narrative about slavery in the Civil War. Um, and so this, this myth of sort of a, a free um, independent American West has real staying power. Um, so it's hard to imagine just how, how Southern it once was.
0: So what does this story overall tell us about um, our country's connection to slavery um, and that sort of that, that fundamental story about the United States?
1: Mm. Um, just that uh, the the struggle over slavery really was a transcontinental struggle. Um, there wasn't a part of the country that could remain sort of blissfully free of the debates over slavery and the evil effects of slavery. Um, and that the West really does deserve incorporation in this mainstream American narrative about the coming of the civil war um, that we should sort of, we should, we should see American history during this period in the mid 19th century from a, from a, with a wider vision um, and not strictly as this struggle between a slave South East and a free Northeast.
0: Yeah. I think that's a really important idea. It's, you know, it the connection between the United States and slavery is is so all-encompassing um, that every state has a role in it, um, even the West, which again, for um, the the reasons you you talked about a couple minutes ago, um, we tend to forget about in popular memory. And I'm I'm very glad this book sort of helps fight against that.
1: Exactly. Yeah, it's it's too easy just to sort of quarantine the history of slavery and Jim Crow to the American South and say, well. It's, it's only that quarter corner of the country that's really responsible for all, so many of the nasty things in our national story. Um, you know, the, the nation as a whole was complicit in so many ways in the history of slavery um, and Californians shouldn't disabuse themselves and think that they were somehow free of that history. So
0: what do you think the most important thing that our listeners should take away from this um, discussion in, the, in your book um, is?
1: I, I, think, I think it would be that, um, that the history of slavery is in fact a national story. It's a transcontinental story. It's not a regional story. Um, and so you can't just sort of lay the sin of slavery exclusively at the door of the South. Um, and in a lot of ways, California and the American Southwest propped up the slave regime of the South, um, gave it power, gave it range, um, and sort of sustained part of that vision all the way through the Civil War.
0: Great. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Um, Where should people look for uh, if they want to learn more um, about this subject and uh, where can they get your book?
1: Um, uh, Really, wherever books are sold, it's called West of Slavery, the Southern Dream of a Transcontinental Empire. You know, it's on Amazon. It's available through the publisher at a discounted rate um, through University of North Carolina Press and, and at various bookstores. Sweet.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the
1: podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jake. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Roundhouse Crosstalk. If you'd like to check out Kevin Waite's book, the link is in the description below. Join us again in a couple of weeks as we discuss the abandonment of passenger trains in Santa Cruz, California. We'll see you next time.